0: The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera, Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts.
1: And I'm Carol Anderson. We are back with one of our, what we're now calling Deep Dives, TM. Patented. Patented. And... Jeff and I are just going to chat. Uh, Hopefully, you enjoyed our chit-chat over ROMS 4 a few weeks back. So, Today, we're going to talk about a very different subject that I came up with as I was driving. I have some of my best ideas when I'm driving, and luckily...
0: Some people, it's the shower. For you, it's the car.
1: Yeah, and luckily, my commute's not long enough for me to forget them. (laughs) So, I thought about, um, you know, some of you who are out there are regular Utah Symphony, Utah Opera patrons. You know this, but some of you may not know. Utah Symphony, Utah Opera was one of the first organizations to kind of merge both these art forms. And this happened back in 2002, and I believe the thought was that we, were, we had actually rebranded the organization as one, Utah Symphony and Opera. A few years into the merger, we realized that there was far less overlap between the symphony and opera audience than we had anticipated, and so that led to a rebrand where we separated everything out again. So that's just like the quick history of why we're talking about this today. So one of the things that I find interesting is that Jeff is a passionate opera fan and I am a passionate symphony fan. Yep. And I work in the opera and Jeff works on the symphony side. So we are the actual merger. We are. We are. And so I wanted to talk about our art forms, and what each of us loves about our art form. And maybe this will be something that some of you out there that haven't tried the other art form, you are a symphony fan and you don't think you like opera, maybe we can sort of inspire you to check it out a little bit more and have an open mind towards all the things that make up classical music.
0: Yeah. You know, Carol, it's funny you bring this up because the merger happened in 2002 and I arrived in 2004. And I've had people throughout my career ask me, what was it like, the merger? And I always say, I have no idea the company that hired me was already merged. So I came into this job way back when fully and already excited about the fact that the company was these two things, these two jewels in one box. That really was exciting to me. I wanted to be close to an opera company.
1: And that was for me as well. I came out in 2003 with the same idea of excited about the collaborations and the chance to work on the symphony side more than I had ever done.
0: I think one thing that you're not saying, but I will, is that it's not just the audience that has had a hard time seeing these two things as overlapping. Sometimes you you feel that on the staff too. I noticed when I got here that there was still very two distinct mindsets in the company. There were opera people and there were symphony people, and there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of folks who um, showed a lot of interest or trust in the other side of the company. And you and I get here; it's already uh, in place, and we just sort of dove right in, and we found our trust and our interest through each other really in a big way
1: like we were like golden retrievers who didn't know better
0: exactly exactly gold and goldfish we just don't have long memories (laughs)
1: exactly (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah i am gonna put that on my studio wall forever by the way (laughs) ted lasso if you don't get it exactly so jeff when you came on board with the company i don't think we met initially, because uh, another phenomenon of our company is we're in two different buildings. So Jeff worked in the other building from me, or I worked in the other building from him, depending on what your point of view is. <laughs> but we have a yearly tradition, not really a tradition, it's a, it's a, it's a work thing, where we have uh, Christopher, Macbeth, and I go on the road, and we have to look for new resin artist singers. And different people have come along with us for that ride at at certain points but this particular year this person whom I barely knew this Yahoo just showed up and was at the audition table and I'm like why the heck is Jeff Count sitting here watching opera auditions he's in the other building he's a symphony guy why is he here Jeff why were you there
0: well first of all Yahoo is the nicest thing you've ever called me Carol so let's <laughs> timestamp that there's so but much love here <laughs> I so when I got to the company it was it was it was made clear to me that whenever the symphony was going to hire singers, that Christopher Macbeth would be the resource that I would use to do that. So when the symphony did a Messiah or a Requiem or something, some oratorio work that required vocalists, I would go to Christopher. We would discuss it. That was just set up from the beginning as our mechanism for getting that work done. And Christopher hit on the idea since that, um, since the symphony often used the resident artists in Messiahs and other, you know, family programming that, well, you should come with Carol and I to the audition and just see how the sausage is made. Well, he didn't know as a secret obsessive about opera, I was thrilled to go on those trips. And he didn't just ask me to sit in the background. He actually let me participate. So you and I met each other in Chicago, in that little room, listening to singers, aspirational young people trying to be part of our company. And it was not only rewarding for me just as an artist, it was really a teaching moment for me to see how opera companies, you know, build their staffs and create their companies. And being on the inside of that was incredible. So you you got to meet me at a time when my eyes were wide open. I was really very much Learning at your knee at that point. So it, for me, I, I remember that very fondly. I may have come off like a Yahoo, but I was a bright eyed and very excited one.
1: You were a Yahoo for like 32 <laughs> seconds. And then I was like, no, this guy's cool. Yeah. And uh, it was always fun to have you on those trips. I miss you
0: when you, we go on them now. I know. The fact that I'm not working full time with the company anymore, that's one of my greatest um, regrets is that I don't get to do those trips with you guys.
1: So how did you get, what, what, Prompted this love of opera?
0: Yeah, I mean, when you're in when you're in college and you're learning how to play the French horn, like I was, it's ninety eight percent symphonic repertoire that you're being taught, that you're that you're studying, that you're practicing, that you're preparing to someday play professionally.
1: And, and isn't sometimes when you're assigned to play the opera production, isn't that sometimes like you're being thrown into? purgatory or well, something? Well, maybe, but at my college... To some people, it seems that way. At in my college,
0: schools. we didn't have an opera program, so oh. that was not something I was okay. able to experience in school. It was just wind ensemble, which is band music, military band style music, and then the symphony, the orchestra. Um, actually, the wind ensemble was the stronger unit at my college, so this, the orchestra was actually the punishment ensemble.
1: Oh, my gosh. But I loved the <laughs> repertoire.
0: As I came to it as a listener. I was, you know, I got involved... <laughs> this is going to date me, but I got involved in one of those... CD clubs, you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s, where you, um, you know, you you spend a penny and you get 10 discs, and it's basically a Ponzi scheme that 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 uh, ropes you into monthly expenditures. But I built my CD collection in that way, and uh, also built up the first really significant debt of my life. But that's (laughs) a different story. So I got to know music just by doing a lot of listening, and what I was listening to was symphonic music. And when I left college, I became Semi-professional horn player. I was doing a lot of freelancing around in Tampa, where I was, where I went to school, and where I was sort of starting my life as a musician. Had a opera company, a very small one, um, probably would be considered itinerant, but it was at least an opportunity to get hired by somebody. So when I got hired by the opera company, I jumped on it. Even you were going to say
1: no to a check? N- no
0: way! I wasn't going to say no to a check. I didn't know the repertoire very well, but so I got hired, and in those first couple years did a Hansel and Gretel, did a uh, Pagliacci, did a Il Tabaro, did a Dutchman, did all sorts of really interesting stuff. And I didn't know that repertoire before going in, but once I played it, I was hooked. There was something about the connection between the pit and the stage. I think, Carol, it probably is, whatever whatever made that work for me as an artist and as a human person, is the same thing that works for me in film. It's why I love film so much. It's this its this collision of all these different art forms, of all these different craft practices, of all these different ways of thinking that I just find unbelievably and unendingly fascinating. And I, and I can remember it was Il Tabarro. It was this very rarely performed part of Il Tritico that I got to do. That By I, Giacomo Puccini. Exactly. That I got to do that I just thought, okay, I, I need to know more about this. I mean... To have your first real experience with Puccini, be ill ill to borrow, that's a rare thing. That
1: is not. It's usually La Boheme.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I found that much, much later. So, I mean, long story short, or long.
1: (laughs) Long story long. Or
0: longer. I I found opera as a horn player. Because, I mean, wow, there's some great horn writing.
1: And you started with some of the real heavy hitters, too. I mean, we can acknowledge that the horn parts for Donizetti or Rossini are maybe not I mean, there's some great horn moments, Mm -hmm. but they're not overall, you know, there's a lot of offbeats. No, definitely. And,
0: you know, and playing a little bit of opera and getting a reputation in Florida as somebody that could be trusted, I got hired by the Palm Beach Opera to play Flying Dutchman. And I played third horn on that, which you might think, okay, third horn, it's not first horn. No, the third horn, there are at least five different times where you were the only person in the building making a sound. It's one of the most harrowing experiences of my life, but I was thrilled to do it.
1: I believe I've heard a third horn player come to grief in Flying Dutchman. You
0: probably heard me do it cuz no, I wasn't played you. it in Utah. I played No, it with, wasn't you. Yeah. It was
1: actually in a really major, I'm not going to mention the organization, but it was yeah. a top 5 orchestra.
0: Yeah. So so just to continue on, that once I once I learned about opera and I learned that like the string quartet or the symphony, it's a genre with just this incredible richness to it. There's this centuries of history, just so much exploration to do. It was one of those rabbit holes for which there's no bottom, and I just fell all the way in. And composers that I already loved um, from my symphonic practice, like Strauss and oh, Britton, Richard Strauss. Like Richard Strauss and uh, Benjamin Britten. I, I just suddenly you know, turned the corner in their palace and saw this other room with all this wonderful stuff in it. And I just, you know, being able to explore all of Britten's operas or all of Strauss' operas, that's a lifetime worth of material. And it it just opened up this entire new and completely different world for me as a, I don't want to say as a scholar, but as a learner. And I just, I'm still not done with that. You know me, Carol, you know that I'm famous at work for constantly having the most Obscure possible opera blaring in my office. I'm known for it. People walking into my door and asking, "What is that?" and then being completely baffled by the answer is a common experience for <laughs> They're me. They're like,
1: "I am no longer. I'm not any more enlightened yeah, than when I, I asked
0: the question." That's Harrison Birt Whistle, Punch and Judy. Really great. Thanks, anyways. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's even more eclectic in my taste. <laughs> what about the the real standards? How have you, um, as you've discovered things like Rossini, Barber, Seville, Mozart? Mm-hmm not to figure. It out. I mean some of the great operas, but they're not these heavy-hitting orchestral pieces. How have you how's your discovery been of those?
0: Well, um through those auditions, if I'm honest, because a lot of that repertoire on those auditions, I mean you Carol, you walk into those things and most of the stuff that these young singers are bringing, you don't even need to look at. You know it well enough you can just sit down and accompany them. I mean it's 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 a language you speak that I'm feel like I'm just learning. But, um, and I don't mean Italian or French or German. I mean opera. It's, an, it's a language you speak. And I speak it a little better now, but with an accent. And I'm trying to lose that accent. But I found my way into the standard repertoire through those auditions because I would hear these incredible arias and these incredible pieces and think, I need to know more about that piece. So I would sit there in the room and listen to the singing and talk with you and Christopher. And then I would go back to the hotel and I would I would dive in and learn more about that piece. You know, obviously working at the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera for 15 years, I've been exposed to four main stage productions every year. And so mm-hmm. my, my understanding has grown through that as well. But it was through those, those young singers trying to be part of what we were doing that I learned. I mean, they taught me. Those singers taught me so much about not only why I loved it, but how much I still needed to learn. So fast forward a couple years, my love for opera became known well enough to the company and to Christopher and to the marketing department that I was asked to, I mean, I'd been a program annotator for symphonies for many years, but I was asked to write articles for the opera program books because I think people um, in the company enjoyed my sort of outsider's perspective on it. My, my my way in was always through the history of the source material or the history of the productions. and. You know what was happening to the composer at the time he was writing it, and
1: and you love historical perspective. As I well, love that.
0: I love that. that so, context. So I br- I was able to bring that to it. So when the company would say, Jeff, we need you to write an article about Rigoletto or Giovanni or something, and I even though I knew the piece, I'd listened to it enough to have some familiarity with it. Being able to dig into it as a writer, as a historical sort of interpreter of the uh, of the of the life of that piece that was huge for me. So I'm I'm not a singer. I've never been a singer. I've been a horn player in the pit, but I've never been a director. I've never been any of the cool professional jobs on the opera side. I've always just been a fan. So being able to approach it as a writer was huge.
1: And I um, find myself, you know, on the, on the proofreading process of those programs, I always read your articles. Yeah. Believe it or not, I do read them because... Um, I, I just find your perspective so refreshing and interesting. And I learn things every time as much as I maybe have done magic flute, you know, 12 times.
0: I've been told I've... they're a little research heavy. There's a lot of data and sort of um, historical anecdote oh, no. in there. But I, that's, what, that's what gets me up in the morning. I love that stuff.
1: That's fun. So what, um, what are, gosh, could you name five Desert Island operas? I bet I know at least one of them.
0: Go a Yes, of course.
1: That's uh, by Richard Strauss. If you don't know it, get to know it quickly.
0: I would so can I name five Desert Island opera composers first? Sure. Can we Let's start do there? That. Okay. Strauss is definitely one. And um, I love the obscure ones. And I did air quotes just then because obscure means something different in the US than it does over overseas. And certainly means something different in Utah than it does even at the Santa Fe opera where you work in the summers. Mm-hmm. But I love the Strauss operas like Arabella and Daphne and the ones that aren't done that much. Even Egyptian Helen. I mean, I just, I, I love all of that sort of, those darker corners of the Strauss library. But, so and I need to say that yeah.
1: Egyptian Helen has one of the best character names of any, the Omniscient Mussel.
0: Yeah, it's a seashell that sings. A... <laughs>
1: anyway, <laughs> that's Mussel, M-U-S-S-E-L.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, so Strauss is one. Um, I love the operas of Prokofiev. Love it um let's see britain is probably number one on the list i'm saying him third but he's probably number one on the list um i'm a huge fan and this is just you know this is this is where i start to get weird but i love the operas of michael tippett and if if king priam uh midsummer marriage the ice break these are just to me fantastic pieces that nobody in the u.s knows nobody ever does um, Your opera professional, Carol Anderson, does not know those operas. Any of those three? All right, well.
1: I might have heard a little excerpt of King Priam in mm-hmm. an opera history class. Yeah. So, y'all, I've got some work to do. Well,
0: and I guess the fifth one, if I had to pick, would be Berg. Um, oh, I can just absolutely those, get behind that. Absolutely. Those two works, I think, uh, in a certain way, define the 20th century for me. So I I go back to them again and again. I just never tire of Lulu or Woltzak. If never. you're a
1: British baking fan... You will have noticed the, right before, um, well, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler before, alert. Before
0: Jurgen got bounced.
1: <laughs> before Jurgen got bounced, he did say that opera is his favorite, and his favorite opera is Walzac because of all the layers, just like his bakes.
0: I think there were, you know, a lot, I think, excuse me. <clears throat> I think there's a huge cross section of opera fans and British baking fans. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think there were a lot of people like my wife and I that smiled when he said that. That was incredible. And yeah. then and then to have him get bounced at the end of the episode. Again, spoiler alert, sorry.
1: Well, we did say spoiler alert beforehand. Yeah. So. Well, that I now that's that's fascinating because, you know, as a person who came to opera as working in the field and I came to opera late too. I mean, I was I remember growing up, a, well, this will come up when I talk about Symphony, too. We always had the radio on, the FM radio, the console stereo. And when the Met broadcast would start, the Texaco, what, what was the full name? Metropolitan Opera Broadcast, you mm-hmm. know. We would always flip the channel and put records on because we were not an opera
0: family. <laughs> yeah. How did you come to it then? Because you weren't a singer. Uh,
1: well, it, well, I was a singer, actually. Uh, and But... Um, so, yeah, I was a singer, but it was clear that I would not make a real career out of it. I have my voice teacher mm-hmm. at Baylor University, and I've told her this recently, to thank for my entire career. She said, you play the piano really well. You're, you're, you love singing. You understand singers. You should be a collaborative pianist. And that's somebody who would work and perform leader recitals, you know, with singers, a singer and a pianist on stage or right. maybe violin sonatas, that sort of thing. And then when I went to... Graduate school, I actually discovered that I I, I sort of fell into opera because I got this graduate assistantship that just happened to be the one that was open at Cincinnati, uh, University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, arguably one of the top vocal schools for um, graduate work. And they had a graduate assistantship in the opera program. And I thought, well, free school, why not? And my first opera that I ever played was Tales of Hoffman, which is, it was a sort of a baptism by fire. Yeah. Because it's not one of the, it's one of the more, it's, it's got some particular complications and it was a very edgy production in a very European style. So the little girl from Texas was like, her eyes were like, boing, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's what it, it it really started out as a vehicle to um, get tuition and a stipend for grad school. And then it didn't take me long to be like, yes, this is what I have to do.
0: I'm so glad you said edgy production, because that is something I need to fully admit to being another really important part of the opera experience for me, which is the production elements. I, you know, a symphony performance, you can do a Strauss Alpine Symphony every single year and have it be very different in terms of its interpretation, its performance quality, all of those things. There's all these things below the surface that change. But everything in opera can change above the surface, too, in a way that's really Very obvious. I I can remember a Don Giovanni production I saw in 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 Berlin at the Staatsoper that was just basically a big block that the people were pushing around the stage. That's pretty much it. And you know there were scooters and I just oh Europe yeah exactly European productions would would not fly often in most American cities. But and I just was in Berlin recently and saw Die Walküre as part of the new Deutsche Oper Ring that. uh, Stefan Harheim, this Norwegian director, is putting out that's that I'm going to go back in January and see the complete run of which I'm super excited. Um, can you can you can you tell I love this Carol?
1: I can tell. Okay,
0: so that production is very strange and very non-traditional, and in Berlin, people are just openly booing it. It's just part of the process there. So, <laughs> production. Changes fascinate me. I'm just constantly fascinated. I love the traditional stuff as much as anybody else, and I do love it when people take big chances, especially with time frame or um, or, or 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 subtext or context. I love when people take chances with those things. But there's, it's just, there's endless possibility with that. that you, that's the way you do these pieces once every four years, the most popular ones, because you're not always just pulling out your painted drops and putting on the tights. You you hire directors that have interesting new ways of looking at the material.
1: And I think one of the things that um, a company like Utah Opera, we try to do a mix of traditional because we know we, we have audiences that want to see those beautiful totally. period costumes. I do too. But then we also want to make sure that we're not showing them the same thing all the time. And, right. you know, we... Took, we went on a limb with this Barber Seville that we just did, and it was quite updated. And lots of people said, "This is the best thing I've ever seen." And lots of people said, "Where, where are the tights?" Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, in Berlin,
0: they would have just openly booed. That's just the way they do. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I love that. Actually, yeah. though, I've only been in one opera production in this country where it was booed, and I, I thought, wow, this is great. At least people are having a feeling about it. You know, yeah. they're not just passively taking it in. Yeah, they were actually reacting and making their displeasure known in a really fun way.
0: Let me ask you a question that I've always had about opera because you might have a some insight into this. As a as a non-singer, as a person who came to opera as a as a as an instrumentalist but also mostly just as a fan, I the one thing that can pull me out of an opera pretty quickly is bad acting. And I know that acting is a big part of the training that singers get, and I know that Stage fighting and other things like that are taught to them on a case by case basis when needed. But do you find that for yourself that 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 kind of blunt, unsubtle acting can can take you out of the experience, or is that just something as a movie person I need to wrestle with personally?
1: I think it might be related to your interest in movies, Mm -hmm. your passion for movies. I shouldn't just say an interest; it's a passion. But because I can separate from the acting and just enjoy. I mean, if it's bad singing and bad acting, then I'm lost. But if it's good singing and the acting, I can sort of separate and just take in those other aspects. Do I love it as much? No, I want to see the whole... I mean, the reason, as you said, the reason we're in, we love opera is because it's this Gesamtkunstwerk. Yeah. It's everything combined, all exactly. the arts, and so we don't want to see one of them obviously lacking. But I still can just sit back and enjoy the movie, the the movie, <laughs> <laughs> the music, <laughs> or the movie.
0: Keep it in, Robert. That Freudian slip. Oh gosh.
1: My <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, yeah. So, um, but I do love seeing. You know, when I see a young singer perform, I love seeing honesty and. Um, that's it's fun to do these modern pieces because they lend themselves to really honest acting, something like Moby Dick, where um, the Ishmael character Greenhorn is just um, you know laying it all out there about his struggle with what he's seeing on this journey. That has to be honestly acted or and it, so the, the modern operas have a different sort of demand, I think.
0: Do you think that the 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 recent? uptick in broadcast opera in in theatrical and I don't mean theatrical like being in a theater but in a in a in a projection space do you think that recent uptick has changed opera acting because I notice I mean the one thing you never get to see in an opera house are their faces at least not really well so those subtle changes in mood, I mean, basically, if, if you want to display something, you have to rush to the downstage corner of the stage and clutch your pearls. I mean, that's just the way, <laughs> that's the move. But on those Met productions or other of these videos that we've been watching, you can see a lot more subtlety in the face. So you can, you, you can see, you know, Debbie Voigt as Brunhilde react to something that Wotan says to her in real time on her face. And I think that's really interesting.
1: It is interesting. It is also a double-edged sword. One of the things we've been talking about is we've been emerging from the pandemic into mm-hmm. stage performances. We, we did so many things for video. And every, uh, a lot of my singer colleagues have become smaller. You know, and this is just young singers, more experienced singers. They just got used to acting in a smaller space. They got used to performing for a camera for the, you know, at some when we were just getting started – And everybody was desperate to make some art. It was for their iPhone camera. And then we got much more sophisticated. And, you know, even at Utah Opera, we did some video projects. But acting for the camera is very different. And so I think it's right now, yes, there are things you can see. But... In the pandemic, we've seen people's bodies, their presences kind of shrink a little bit from the camera. And so I think that's kind of a pendulum that has to be swung back in the other direction. Yeah,
0: I think you're right. But I think there's something that can be taken from this experience and brought back to the reaching the back of the hall kind of acting that is necessary in opera.
1: And I do love when one of those Met broadcasts is very well-directed. Every yep. direct They're not always directed by the same person, the broadcast. Right. I'm not talking about the opera production, right. the broadcast with the camera work. Mm-hmm. And I love when you can sort of get the storytelling so up close and personal. You can watch in a Philip Glass opera, you, there's so much um, repetition of melodic material. I think about the end of Satyagraha and um, uh, Richard Croft was the, the – Um, the Gandhi in that one, and he sings the same melodic line for about seven minutes at the end, but watching his face and the way he varied it was mesmerizing. And we wouldn't have that. You would see that in the stage. You would get the impression of that, but you wouldn't see the detail that you see in the theater.
0: Yeah. You said something a second ago that I want to ask you about. You talked about bodies shrinking before the camera, and it reminded me that opera went through something – a couple of decades ago. And I'm curious if you think it's still ongoing. There was this there was this moment where I don't know what was happening in the audiences or what was happening with the people who were running the companies, but body type and body shape started to become an issue for singers. People were starting to lose parts. People were starting to get parts based upon the way that they looked. And I, boy, just found that to be a very distasteful turn for the for the for the art form, how did? I mean, that might have happened before. Started happening before you were in the business professionally, but it, is that still happening? Has that something that is self-corrected? Where do you what do you feel about that?
1: Well, I would say that it was a definite trend that happened, and probably it was related to getting more film influence into the art form. I think yeah. there probably is because, yeah. uh, but I think that it is. I think there's a huge backlash to that right now. I think that um, every young singer is fighting for their identity and they're going to call you out if you even hint at looking at their body type when you're making a casting choice. I think that that's a challenge because you know we had that, that caricature for so long that everyone imagines that opera singers uh, have a certain body type and they wear a helmet with horns Particularly on. Particularly the women. And yeah. I think that that... That was, there is, has been this sort of long brewing backlash against that caricature because we want to make sure that opera, that people understand that there's more to opera than just that image. There's more, there's not just Valkyries in the opera. But you also cannot make your choices based solely on appearance. I mean, the most important thing about opera is the voice. And I know that that's a challenge because there are some amazing voices in the not traditional bodies out there and i you know of course i'm not going to name any names but uh you know um it's just i think i think we're in the middle of a huge pendulum swing and i think it has to settle to where everyone is just judged on their own merit as an artist as a singer as a performer mm-hmm. i've seen larger bodies do amazing acrobatic feats on stage and i've seen s- smaller bodies that can't do anything so you can't say can't paint any body size with a broad brush. Yeah. I I think that's really the main thing. You can't limit it. That can't be a criteria that counts someone in and out.
0: Isn't the point that you just have to be made to believe that they love each other, made to believe that they want to murder each other, made to believe that they are either sad or happy. It has nothing to do with the way they look. And I I just found that whole uh, shift, that public shift in the business to be troubling. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. You think the pendulum at least is beginning to swing back in, in the right direction.
1: Yeah. And I hope that, you know, audiences can also, um, you know, it's, it's happening in the film and TV industry, too, that um, v- variety and body size is being and age. slowly honored in age. And I think that's just, um, you know, it's partly we have to train our audiences too that everything is beautiful, yeah. that not just a size two woman is not the only standard of beauty out there. I mean, I'm not a size two woman. You know, very few of us are in everyday life. And that's not, you know, that's just there's variety and there's beauty in the variety.
0: You said it best. It's all about the voice. That's the only thing that matters.
1: It's clear that Jeff and I are well overdue for uh, cocktails and about two hours of opera chat. So thanks for letting us um, go on for a while about this. And Girl, hope... I've
0: been drinking this entire time. You weren't
1: <laughs> coffee. <laughs> okay. It's a morning podcast yeah, right now. Yeah. Um, so, Jeff, remind us of your Desert Island group of oh. composers that you want us to look at.
0: I will do that, but first I have to hear yours. I'm curious if there are any overlaps. What are your favorites?
1: There are some overlaps. Um, mine are a little bit less um, esoteric, <laughs> but I would say that I overlap deeply with Strauss and Britain. I resonate with those two composers so strongly, and one of my favorite things has been the, throughout my life, when I've gotten to do a, a Strauss or a Britain opera, I feel like it's a gift from the gods. Mm-hmm. Just so wonderful. Um, I couldn't do this business without Mozart and Puccini. Yeah, right. They're the ones that brought me in.
0: Of course.
1: I got to have a fi- fifth one. You need one more? <sighs> Coming up with a fifth one's hard because I have about 17 composers I want to take it's with a, me. It's a
0: tie for fifth place. But I
1: think I'd have to say Verdi, and most of all, Verdi's Falstaff. Yeah. Fall stuff. yeah. That is, to me, a jewel of an opera. It's perfect. There's not a single note out of place.
0: Well, agreed. I love all of those. Um, again, we we overlap in Strauss and in Britain. Uh, for me, also, uh, what did I say? Prokofiev, Berg, and then Tippett. That's my, that's my real secret love. So yeah, there's a lot of listening there folks can do if they want to get into the minds of Carol and Jeff. It's a strange place, but come on in. You're welcome.
1: Check out the show notes because we'll have a list of some operas where you can start your journey into the deep recesses of Jeff and Carol's minds. Also, feel free to write ghostlight at USUO.org and let us know some of your favorites or ask us for resources and we can steer you to specific places to start your journey or to continue your journey or to enhance your journey if you're already a big opera fan.
0: Carol, thank you so much for bringing this topic up. It's been a ton of fun. I love these deep dives. It's a great idea. I want to keep doing this with you. So maybe next time we'll talk about why you love the symphony business so much. Let's do it. I would love to hear that from you. So thanks to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. That helps us get new listeners. Be sure to also visit USUO.org for information about upcoming performances, particularly opera performances, and we hope to see you soon at the Capitol Theater. Until next time, I'm Jeff Counts.
1: And I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening.
0: The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. For questions about the show, you can reach us at ghostlight at USUO.org. The Utah Symphony, Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.